Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our studies in this uh, first letter written by the Apostle Peter to a scattered number of churches that were located in modern-day Turkey. So this morning we'll be looking primarily at verses 16 and 17. But I'd like to go ahead and start reading in verse 13 just to remind you of of uh, the context. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, reading what Peter wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And he wrote, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the King. And may God bless the reading of His Word. As we uh, begin to look at this uh, passage, we see that uh, Peter has been exhorting them on the general theme of submission. And the submission is going to be applied in several different areas of life. But he begins in verse 13 with just the exhortation to be uh, subordinate, to submit to our civil authorities. Do we have the uh, working on it? Okay. So as we, we look at this, we drop down and we see in verse 16 and 17, which is primarily what we're going to focus on this morning, that he exhorts them now in verse 16 to act as free men, but not to use their freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So here he's giving them basically their their spiritual resume. He's done that in many different ways already in this letter. But now he says, basically, you are free slaves. And that sounds kind of like an odd expression. You're free slaves. So he starts out, and we want to examine that to see kind of what's involved in being a free slave. But uh, in verse 16, he begins as we examine this concept, by exhorting them to act or live as free men. Now, this is something that the Lord Jesus has emphasized in His own ministry, that there is a spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. For example, if you look at uh, John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Later in verse 36, he says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus talked about a spiritual freedom that the truth would grant to us. Later on, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 verse 1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject, be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 
So again, Paul emphasized the same notion that in Christ we are free. And we should not subject ourselves again to a yoke of slavery, which would be legalism in the context of Galatians. This freedom, therefore, that the Lord is talking about, that Paul is talking about, that Peter is talking about in verse 16, is not a physical freedom, because some of them in the church were slaves. It's not a political freedom, necessarily, but it is a spiritual freedom. So we are free in Christ. So what's that, what does that mean? How can we better understand the freedom that we are to act in and live by as Christians? Well, we can break it down into several things. Uh, first off, we are free from the bondage of sin. Peter has already instructed them about this in chapter 1 when he said in verse 18 and 19 that we have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ from the futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. So to be redeemed, remember, was oftentimes used of someone buying a slave and setting them free. So we are free in that regard so that we're no longer bound to our futile way of life, that old sin nature that we used to have before we were saved and redeemed by Christ. Paul also speaks of our freedom from the bondage of sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 7, when he says that he who has died is freed from sin. In chapter 6, verse 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So we have been set free from the bondage of sin. Now what that means is, sin will not control you or dominate you in your entire life as it did when you were an unbeliever. Will we still struggle with sin? Yeah, we certainly will. In Romans 7, verse 24, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So there can still be a battle, but sin will not dominate you. It will not enslave you. You are set free from that bondage, that enslaving power of sin. Though we're not set free totally from the effects of sin. It's still a battle and a, and a struggle. But that bondage, that slavery to sin has been broken. We are free. And in that regard, that's part of what I think Peter means and what we need to understand by being free men, as he refers to it in verse 16. There's another idea that's also connected with our freedom, and that is that we are free from the condemnation of the law. Paul emphasizes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. When he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we have been set free from the law of sin and death. The law that condemns us. The law that, that curses us. We're not under the condemnation or the curses of the law anymore. We are free. We have been set free from that by the blood of Christ. 
Paul also says something similar in Galatians 3.13 when he says Christ redeemed us, that is, He paid a price to set us free from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. So we have been redeemed, we've been set free from, been brought out from under the curse of the law. We're no longer under the condemnation of the law. And that's something to rejoice in, that freedom that we have. And every believer has that freedom. I love the way the Old Testament describes this in symbolic form on the Day of Atonement. This idea that we are free from the condemnation and the curse of the law. From the penalty of, of the law. And that's when they took the two goats on the Day of Atonement. One of the goats they would slaughter. The high priest would take his blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. So now our sins are forgiven. They're atoned for. So our sins have been, have been forgiven. The curse of the law has been broken. The condemnation has been taken away because a substitute died in our place. Now that lamb couldn't, the blood of that goat rather couldn't take away the sin, but it's foreshadowing the coming of the blood of Christ. But there's another goat called a scapegoat. And the high priest would come out and put his hands on the head of that goat and confess over that goat all the sins of Israel. And now, symbolically, this goat is heavy laden with all of the sin, all of the curses, all of the condemnation of their sin. And then one of the Levites would tie a rope on that goat and lead it out of the camp, out of the city, out into the wilderness until it's gone out of sight. And all the people there are seeing this this goat heavy laden with their sins being led away. And it's just going off into the horizon. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller till it disappears and they never see it again. And that's a picture, if you will, in part, of the fact that we have been set free from the condemnation and the curse of the law of God. And they rejoiced in that when they saw their sins not only atoned for by the blood of one goat, but the other goat that represented the, the accumulation of all of their sins being taken away, removed, taken out of sight. That's a beautiful picture of this truth that we have been set free by Christ from the condemnation of the law. But there's one more aspect of this freedom that I think we should consider. And that is we're also set free from the ceremonial law in Christ. Not the moral law, but the ceremonial law. So Christ in the Sermon on the Mount said, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Christ came to actually fulfill the ceremonial law. All the sacrificial system. All of the ministry of the high priest and the Levitical priest and the animal sacrifices and all that was involved in the worship of God, He came and fulfilled. So we're not under the ceremonial law anymore. Hebrews 7.12 refers to this when it says when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So when you move from the Levitical priesthood 
to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which Christ's priesthood is linked to, there is a change of law. And what that means is, at least in the context of Hebrews, primarily the ceremonial law. Because Christ has fulfilled that. So there's a change of law. So we're not only, we're not under the ceremonial law any longer. We don't bring animal sacrifices. We don't participate in Levitical priesthood. We, the, the dietary laws have been fulfilled. So all of that we're free from as well. Law of circumcision, all of that that was involved in the ceremonial law now has been fulfilled. The moral law, of course, is still binding. It's eternal because it represents the eternal character of God. As John will say in another place, by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So keeping the moral law of God is still very much a part of the Christian life. So notice back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter writes, act as free men. So act and live out your life in light of these truths. You are free from the bondage of sin. You're free from the condemnation of sin. You're free from all the ceremonial parts of the law that have been fulfilled in Christ. But he goes on to say in verse 16, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So now he's saying, okay, you are free, but don't abuse your freedom. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a pretext or a covering for sin or doing something that does not honor the Lord. Now there's several things I think Peter could have in mind when he's talking about in verse 16, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. I think there's three ways we can think of of how this may apply to his readers. The first, of course, would be in the context, don't think that because you're free in Christ that you don't have to be submissive to your governing authorities. Don't think that because you are free in Christ and your citizenship is in heaven, Therefore, you have no responsibilities to your civil authorities or your government. And probably some of them may have thought, you know, my citizenship is in heaven. I'm a pilgrim in this world. I'm not obligated to keep the laws of my country. But our freedom in Christ didn't mean that we are free in regard to being submissive to civil powers. We have a duty to live according to the laws of our society. So in this context, apparently there might have been some believers who were taught a distorted view of their freedom, which made them think, therefore I don't have to abide by the laws of men. I can live any way I want to in that regard. And that certainly would be wrong. There's another way that this freedom could be abused, and that would be in the area of sanctification or we could just summarize it as the antinomian viewpoint. Antinomian is one of those big words which basically means you're against law. Anti, like antichrist, someone who's against Christ, opposed to Christ. Namos is a Greek word for law. So antinomian is someone who's against the law of God. And this 
was also an issue in the first century because some of them thought, well, if I'm free in Christ, then I can, and I'm forgiven of all of my sins, that I really don't have to live by the law of God because then Paul say I'm not under law but under grace. So I can just, I don't have to live by the law of God in any form or fashion. And that was a, a mindset that apparently crops up in several places, even in the New Testament. But while Paul is, excuse me, Peter is emphasizing, as well as Paul, is that though we are free from the condemnation of the law, we're free from the bondage of the law, from the penalty of the law, it would be wrong to say then it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. I can just do whatever I want to. The attitude that, well, I'm forgiven of all my sins, so it doesn't really matter if I sin. I can just live however. That is wrong. That's the antinomian spirit. And this is sinful thinking. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, he gives a similar warning that Peter is giving here. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity to exercise and live in the flesh. So he's exhorting them, look, you're free, but your freedom is limited. Your freedom is only applied in certain areas, but it doesn't mean you can go out and live any way you want to. And Paul dealt with a similar distortion in Romans 6 verse 15 when he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. See, some were arguing, look, I'm not under law. I've been set free from the law. So, you know, the, the moral law of God doesn't apply to me anymore. And they were distorting that. That's not true, but that's what they were thinking. So they were justifying living in the flesh and living in sin under this false notion of freedom. And what Paul is emphasizing is that it's true, you're not under law, but that means you're not under the condemnation of the law. You're not under the bondage of the law, but you're certainly still under the moral law of God. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to go out and live any way you want to. And some people today say, well, the only law we have to live by is love. And yet it's the commandments of God that define what love is, what true love is. And so they were distorting this and it was giving them an opportunity to live according to the flesh. So God's grace... And freedom can easily be abused if it makes our attitude towards sin more relaxed or if we say sin is not that big of a deal because God's grace should stir us to hate our sin, not to wink at it or smile at it or discount its seriousness. We must never forget that we're forgiven, that we're free in Christ But the grace of God should never make us indifferent or insensitive to our sin. And it was having that effect uh, among some of the believers in the New Testament era. We should continue to be grieved by our sin, repent of our sin. 
So this whole issue of antinomianism is, is something that Peter, as well as Paul, exhorted their people, look, rejoice in your freedom, live as free men, but understand, it doesn't mean you can live any way you want to. You still must live according to the moral law of God. And then there's another way this freedom can be abused within the church. And that's just dealing with a a wide spectrum of secondary issues. And the one that crops up a lot is the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, You can find this in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let me just uh, review like Paul writes to Timothy about food. He says that there are false teachers who are advocating abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. But in the early church, a number of these believers had been saved out of the paganism and the idolatry that was prevalent throughout the Roman uh, Empire. And for them, in their old life, before they were saved, they would go to an idol's temple. They would eat meat sacrificed to idols. There would be sacrifices, animal sacrifices made to that god. And then a lot of times it's like they had a restaurant or something associated with the temple because then they'd take that meat from that animal and they would sell it or they would cook it and they would eat it and that the eating of it would be a part of their worship of that idol. Okay? So now some of them get saved. And some of them now say, well, you know, before when I would go and eat that meat sacrificed to idols, I was doing and and, and worshiping a false god. But I know better now, because I know that God has created that meat, and that meat is good, and I have the freedom to go buy that meat and eat that meat for the glory of God, and I'm not worshiping that idol when I do that. And he had the freedom to do that. But some of the other brethren, their, their conscience was still very tender on that issue. And for them, it was absolutely wrong to go and eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so that's what created the, the controversy. And you can read about again in the passages that I, that I referred to. I'll just make mention of, of one. 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> Paul exhorting the believers, he says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, to be drawn back into idol worship. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So what is exhorting? 
He's exhorting those with liberty that understand their liberty to be willing to restrain that and subject that liberty and not live it out in the presence of those who struggle with that area. It's the responsibility of love for those who have the liberty to not use their liberty if someone else, a brother, if it causes them to stumble. So that's another area where freedom, liberty in Christ, can be used as a means of just using our flesh. Well, I've got that freedom. I'm going to die. I don't care what they think. It's my freedom. And he said, no, no, that's not love. You need to subject that to the brethren. They need to grow in their knowledge for sure. But he says it's love for you to, to not do it in their presence. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy that liberty at home. You know, you can go to that idol's temple and, uh, and you can buy that meat. But instead of eating it where maybe some of the other brethren are going to see you do it and stumble over, just take it home and, and enjoy it there. So there's still the liberty there, but it's a liberty that is willing to not be used as a covering for harming or put a stumbling block in another brother's way. So lots of issues, but the the point that Peter is making is that we are free. But don't use our freedom as a covering for evil. Use it to minister to others, to do good to others, to be a blessing to others. And if it's an area where someone else may stumble, then use your freedom at home. Now look at what he says back in 1 Peter 2, verse 16. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. So now we see that not only are we free, we're slaves. So we are free slaves. So now we are slaves of God. Our spiritual freedom is not a license to do as we please because now we are under a different bondage, if you will. We are slaves of God. And although it's apparent contradiction, we're free, but we're slaves, both are actually true. And no man is set free from any slavery except by entering into some higher servitude. So once we are set free from sin, the bondage of sin, the curse of sin, the condemnation of sin, we nevertheless are now in servitude to a higher authority, a higher servitude, because now we become slaves of God. We were slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of Almighty God. So Paul also emphasizes this. Peter and Paul obviously agreed on on these truths. Paul said in Romans 6, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you're free, free from sin, but you're a slave. You're a slave to righteousness. And in verse 22, he says, he repeats it, he says, uh, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So we're free, but we're also slaves. We are slaves to the Lord God. 
just as a, uh, a comment about uh, the word in here in First Peter chapter two verse sixteen, it says, "Bond slaves of God." Some translation may say servants of God. There's a, there's really kind of a difference between a servant and a slave. And the word here is slave. A servant is someone who's hired. A slave is someone who is owned. And we are slaves of God. We are owned by God. We're free but we're not free to live any way we want because I am free, but I'm also owned and possessed by God. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, where Paul reminds us that you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Peter has already reminded us in verse 9 of this chapter that we are people for His own possession. God owns you and me. God possesses you. Your life is not your own. He owns you. You're His possession. You're His property. Now it's interesting that it's estimated that in the Roman Empire in the first century, that there were probably one out of every five people were slaves. In some of the cities, like in Rome, it may have gotten all the way as much as 40% of slaves in some of the cities. But empire-wide, I have read, I don't know how accurate it is, but at least 20% were slaves. And in the first century, that would have guesstimated to be around 12 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, a slave was not free. They were somebody else's property. They were totally subjected, subjugated to the will of their master in everything. The slave in principle had no rights. He had no legal status whatsoever. He was chattel. He was the property of his master. And one's experience as a slave depended upon the character of their master. There were some good ones and some bad ones. So what does it mean that we're a slave of God in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 2? Well, MacArthur has a book on it entitled Slave. And in there he quotes from a Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren. And he described that this is what a slave of God implies. As a slave of God, it implies absolute submission. Unconditional obedience. That God as our Master has the right to use us however He wishes. The Master has complete ownership. The right of life and death. The right of disposing of all of His goods and properties. The right of issuing commandments without a reason. The right to expect, expect that those commandments would be swiftly and completely performed without hesitation. And if we are slaves of God, then we owe that allegiance to our God. Now in the Roman, the Greco-Roman world, to be a slave was a badge of dishonor. It was a badge of shame. Oftentimes, 
But for Peter and Paul and James and Jude and John, who all call believers slaves of Christ or slaves of God, I assure you it's a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor because of the character of our Master. Our Master is infinitely holy, wise, and good. He is infinitely merciful and loving and compassionate to those who are in His service. He is omnipotent. He has all power to protect them and defend them. He's omniscient. He rules over the universe. He has sacrificed His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross and bore our sins and suffered the full penalty and condemnation of our sin so that we might be set free. And He willingly sacrificed His Son to secure our forgiveness, our salvation, and our eternal inheritance in heaven. Being a slave of man is not good, but being a slave of God is glorious. There's really no greater, higher status than being a slave of God. To be God's slave is a joyful slavery. It's not one that's burdensome. But one that helps us to fulfill our purpose in life. Why God made you can only be fulfilled as we live our lives as slaves of God, slaves of Christ. As slaves, we are the possession of God. He watches over us. Again, He protects us. He cares for us. And even though we're His slaves, He doesn't treat us as slaves to abuse, but He treats us as His sons to live, to love. So we're slaves also. We're free. We're also sons. Which adds a dignity to our slavery, if you will. That we are slaves to God. It adds a glory to it. It adds a difference from what the world knows about slavery. Because we do it out of love and devotion and service to our Master. Our greatest good is not found in doing our own will. But to do God's will, that is our greatest good as believers. And these truths had a very practical application for the church because within the church, some of them were slaves. They were slaves to men. They were slaves physically and in bondage. And some of them, their masters were not good people at all. And yet others within the church were free. They were not slaves. And these two truths would have different powerful implications for the, for the various groups. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 7.22, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave, that is a slave to men, is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. So the ones who are slaves to men, they need to glory and remember, no, I am the Lord's free man. I am free. And let that truth encourage your heart when you're going through trials and struggles. But if you're free, 
and nobody owns you, and you may have a tendency to abuse that privilege, you remember that you're the Lord's slave. And you remember that you're not out there, you're not free to just do anything you want to. No, you are free to be obedient to God and obey your Master because you're His slave. And let that truth sink down into your life as well. We are set free from sin so that we might live as slaves to God. And only those who are slaves of God are genuinely free and able to fulfill God's purpose for your life. Let me try to illustrate it. Think of a, of a train. So a train is, is made for the purpose of hauling people or cargo from one place to another. And we're also made for a purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our purpose in life. To glorify God. But you put that train, that train is only free to fulfill its purpose when it is bound to the tracks. Right? So as long as that train is a slave, if you will, is bound, is, is attached, if you will, to those two tracks, then it is free to fulfill its purpose that it was created to fulfill. So what would happen if that train is going down the track at 60 miles an hour Besides, you know what? I just passed over a highway. I think I'll, I'll get off and go on that highway. Take a few dirt roads, go, go through a few fields, countryside, see the countryside and, and accomplish my, well, what would happen to that train? Obviously, it would derail and wreck and crash and burn. It's not going to fulfill its purpose. Why? Because it has broken free from those two rails that it must be adhered to, connected to, if it's going to fulfill its purpose in life. In the same way with us. We are like that train. We are called to fulfill God's purpose of glorifying Him. But how can we do it? We have to be, if you will, slaves of God. We have to be committed to running our life on those two rails of God's will found in His Word and God's glory. Living our life on those two rails. And when we do that, then we are free to fulfill the purpose for which we've been created to bring glory to God. Without that, there is no fulfillment. There's only misery and crashing whenever I go out and think I'm going to live my own life. Get off these two tracks. I'm going to go live the way I want to live. Well, you're going to crash and burn. So, freedom is tied to being committed to those rails. Bound to those rails. Living according to God's will found in His Word. And living for the glory of God. That will enable us to be free in living out what we've been called to live for. And that is God's glory. Well, real quickly, in uh, jumping into verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Peter now jumps back to just a, a general four little 
rapid-fire commands to summarize our duties as believers and living a good life to silence the foolish attacks of unbelievers that he made reference to back up in verse 15. So this will silence the foolish attacks of ignorant and foolish people. Honor all people. Honor all people. So he commands us that our attitude should be to honor other people. All kinds of people. Romans, Greeks, Jews, rulers, citizens, slaves, men from every nation, tongue, and tribe, the rich, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the alien. Honor all men. And why should we do that? Because we have a tendency to dishonor some categories. Now, he doesn't say honor their sin, but he says honor all men. And the reason why we should do that is because all men are created in the image of God. We read this all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now, sin has come in and distorted that image, but we haven't totally lost the image. Even unbelievers still have a remnant of that image left within them, though it has been distorted and polluted and perverted by our sin. But James would say in James 3.9, guard our tongue because with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. So he says, honor all men. Don't curse them, honor them. And this is kind of a general attitude we should have to other people. I think one of the... And part of the reason why we should honor them is that their soul can actually be saved as men. So we bring the Gospel to them because their soul can be redeemed by the blood of Christ if they repent and believe. And then they would, be, they would inherit the same blessings that we have. There's that potential by the grace of God if He chooses and changes them and enables them to come to faith. But we're to honor all men. Take the Gospel to all men. It's one way that we can do that. One of the other reasons I think that we see that all men, because they are human beings, are worthy of honor, not because of their sin, but because of their human nature, is in the, in the Bible commanding and require us to put to death those who murder other people. So it's a capital punishment is one of the arguments for supporting the idea that all, there's something in all men, it's their human nature, that they deserve honor. So murder somebody, then the murderer should be put to death. This is what God revealed to Noah right after he came out of the ark. He said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So even if that guy murdered was a, a wretched individual, a sinner of all kind, still he has the honor of life. And if someone comes and murders him, then the murderer should be put to death. 
Why? Because He was made in the image of God. Distorted as it is by sin, it's still an image that deserves honor. And so we're to honor all men. He goes on and adds to that, love the brotherhood, love everyone in the church, love the entire saints of God, the great, the small, the strong, the weak, those walking in righteousness, those struggling with sin. Love them all. Love them all. Love the brotherhood. And within the brotherhood, you have all shapes and kinds and love them. That's our obligation. Love them. And then he says, fear God, which is in many ways the most important. Reverence God. Fear God. Obey God. Love God. Serve God. Fearing God is a safeguard against abusing our liberty. You won't abuse your liberty if you fear the Lord. It'll motivate us for serving God and loving others and doing good to others if we fear God. And then finally, honor the King, which we went over last week. So to wrap up, what Peter is saying is that we are free slaves. That's your spiritual resume. And you need to carry this with you as you go out today. You are free. Rejoice and glory in your freedom. You are free from the dominating, enslaving power of sin. You are free from the condemnation of the law. Live in your freedom. Enjoy it. Praise God for it. It's legalism that robs us of our freedom in Christ. But it's also licentiousness that robs us of our slavery to God because it wants to be free of God and live anyways. No, we're also a slave of God. We are free from sin, but we're not free to live any way we want. We are free, but we're also slaves. We are to according to God's will, found in God's Word. And it's only when our lives are enslaved to God, living according to God's will, found in His Word, that we experience the true freedom that we have in Christ. So remember, you're free. Rejoice in it. But you're a slave of God. So go out and commit yourself to be obedient to God, to live according to His will and bring Him glory. Because that's what we were created to do. And only do it as free slaves. Those in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this teaching from the Apostle Peter. And may the Spirit of God help it to sink into our hearts and our souls and lead us, Lord, in how to apply this to our lives and to be transformed by what You have taught us. So Lord, we give You all the praise and the glory for setting us free. What a glorious freedom we have in Christ. What a joyful freedom we have. But Lord, it is also our highest honor to be Your slaves and help us to rejoice in glory in that status and standing as well. So help us to live our God as Your free slaves. For the glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen.